Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 65 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy specialists RNQ and hosted by me Richard Kutcher. We have got another really really varied episode for you today just how we like it. We'll be starting here in London then a short very short hop east to the Netherlands before crossing back the way across the pond to join a good friend of mine in South Carolina. Our captive owner interview is a really really interesting one this week. I'll be speaking to the global employee benefits team at one of the biggest brewers in the world in Heineken. Rohier Bauman and Fanny Behrens discuss why they formed a new captive just last year for international benefits alone and it is a really insightful listen. In the second half you will hear a short interview I conducted with Joe McDonald at Seeker. Regular listeners of the pod will have heard Joe before but earlier this year he was appointed director of captives for the South Carolina Department of Insurance so he's a new chief captive regulator in a major US domicile and it's great to have him back on the pod in his new role. But before all of that, I'm delighted to welcome our guest co-host for GCP 65, Grant Maxwell, Global Head of Alternative Risk Transfer at Alliance Global Corporate and Specialty. Grant, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Richard, and thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah, it's great to, great to finally have someone from Alliance on. I think it's probably long overdue, but we've we made it happen. Maybe, Grant, for people who perhaps aren't familiar with you or listeners haven't come across you before, can you tell us a little bit about your background in captives and, and commercial insurance and your role at AGCS today? Okay, yeah, certainly. So I've worked in the commercial insurance space for 30 years. Um, I started my career as a consulting actuary, then I moved into um, underwriting, and since then I've, I've been in various underwriting and management roles um, in the insurance and and the reinsurance space and um, working with captives through a lot of that time. And I joined the alternative risk transfer team at AGCNS 14 years ago and I became the head of the of that line of business two years ago. And the, the ART team at AGCNS is, is focused on providing structured insurance for corporates, structured reinsurance and also fronting services for, for captives. And we work very closely with the other, the traditional lines of business at AGCNS and, and what we do is basically complement what the rest of AGCNS uh, uh, provides. One of the reasons I was keen to get you particularly on from, from Allianz is we have not discussed structured reinsurance in, in great detail many times on the podcast before. The, the two notable exceptions being uh, Neil Campbell, who's now at uh, Strategic Risk Solutions, and Kevin Steed uh, at AstraZeneca. Uh, they, they both talked about it in the sun depth previously. And I think definitions sometimes differ between people and companies as to what structured reinsurance is. So from yourself and from AGCS, what are we talking about today when we're talking about structured reinsurance? Yep, um, you're absolutely right. Um, the definitions do vary. Um, in, in, in some senses, that makes perfect sense because what we do is alternative risk transfer. So it's it's alternative to whatever is out there. So so it's actually a very broad um, space, the, the alternative space. Um, so by structured reinsurance, structured insurance or reinsurance, what we mean is um, applying a combination of different techniques to to achieve um, exactly what a client wants from their from their insurance or reinsurance program. So examples of that would be um, multi-year um, transactions, multi-line transactions. So that achieves diversification across uh, across time and also um, or separately across class. We also use a combination of um, different limits. So we we have um, 
per line limits, per year limits, aggregate limits. Uh, the same with with deductibles, we can have you know per line deductibles, aggregate deductibles, and and by doing that, we tailor the program to give the cover exactly the cover the client wants but also kind of minimizing the 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 cost um, so basically optimizing um, the, the program we also typically have additional premiums or return premiums or, or both so that achieves alignment of interest between the, the client and and the insurer and also allows the um, it, in a number of cases allows the client to share in the the overall performance of of, of the product and, and I've used insurance and reinsurance kind of interchangeably mm. so we can do this as insurance of the corporate directly we can also do this as reinsurance behind the captive the principles are basically the same and how we look at it are, are basically the same but um, it, it often works very well as a reinsurance behind the captive because typically a client who has a captive is already thinking about you know, retaining risk and, and financing that risk over time. And so the use of structured reinsurance is, is not that big a step beyond that. Um, so that, yeah, it tends to work very well. So I mean, you touched upon or hinted at some of it a little bit there perhaps, but what do you see then as the primary benefits of these programs and, and structures for corporates? Yeah, the, there's, there's a few key benefits. Um, first of all, they definitely have the ability to be tailored to, to exactly meet what the client wants, um, as, as I mentioned before. So uh, there is no one-size-fits-all. These, these are tailor-made to, to fit the specific needs. The, the multi-year nature tends to, to give more stability over time, particularly when the traditional market is volatile in terms of pricing or capacity. And, and so, yeah, that, that, that's very important. And typically these are cost effective compared to, you know, when, when you look over a, a, a three, five year time horizon, these are cost effective compared to the traditional market um, covers. And then finally, we're often able to include coverages or lines of business that may be very difficult to find in the traditional market. Um, so, for example, non-damaged business interruption um, or very low layers of, of yeah, liability programs. Obviously, it's, it's not always easy to tell because obviously, in general, risk managers and corporates don't go about shouting about how they structure their, their insurance or reinsurance or, or how they use their captive. And we do our best on this podcast to, to eke out as many of those stories from clients as we can. My impression, though, is that when I come across risk managers who are using uh, structured reinsurance or multi-line, multi-year programs, it's, it's kind of they stand out as possibly the exception. How do you assess the, the current level of, of take-up and, and penetration of structured reinsurance in the large complex account space and is it becoming more or, or less common what where's where's the trend heading do you think so i, I agree it, it is very difficult to get definitive figures partly because as you said at the start that people have different definitions of what is structured what is alternative so um uh, you know wh wh when it's easy to get premium spend on property or liability it, 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 there is no single source of of alternative or, or structured. I would say it, it's it's definitely still a, a, a specialized niche product, but it's definitely um, growing in, in popularity. And if we look at our portfolio, our portfolio has roughly doubled in the last two years. We now have over 30 um, captive reinsurance programs, live captive reinsurance programs. And the majority of those are cross-class, um, but we have some monoline programs as well. Uh, those are in, in Europe, in uh, the London market, in the US, in Asia. Asia. So you know we, we are we are covering the the different regions, and we see more and more inquiries o over time, and and across all classes. I'd say most industries and 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 all of the major regions as well.
So you, you said there, obviously, uh, they, those, some of those numbers have doubled over the last two years. Obviously, those last two years have coincided with a, a challenging insurance uh, market or, or for more than two, three years or so now. How do, and obviously the, the pandemic being a big part of those two years as well, how do pricing fluctuations impact a, a structured program and, and has it pushed? It sounds like that may have been one of the reasons that, that pushed risk managers down that route. It, it's definitely a big driver of, of the growth. Um, it, it definitely is. Because if you look at the hard market, so increased price um, and reduced capacity uh, in the traditional market, um, that definitely makes structured reinsurance a more attractive option. That That's going to push clients towards retaining more risk, either through choice because of price or because they have to because of lack of capacity. And that that may leave them with more risk and more volatility than they you know than they want, or they can still buy the um, traditional insurance reinsurance, but but the, the price of that is is volatile. So I, either way, they have more volatility than they they're looking for. So structured reinsurance is is definitely um, you know a, an attractive alternative in a hard market, but I don't think. The hard market is the only reason um, for the the increase, and, and and maybe that's the catalyst. But I think an increasing level of sophistication, uh, you know, in terms of risk management yeah. with with risk managers, that's also driving this. We, what we found is not just in the last two years, but you know, you know, almost the, the whole cycle before that. Once somebody buys a structured reinsurance program, they don't tend to you know leave it. Leave it. They don't tend to go back on that. And in fact, they tend to kind of add more, you know, more lines of business o- over time. So I, I think that the hard market definitely has, has given a push, but I don't think this is going to go away, you know, you know, as the market starts to soften. I, I think it'll be quite sticky. Yeah. And to your point about, you know, when companies do seem to go down that the structured route or the multi-line, multi-year route, they don't seem to leave it. I mean, that kind of chimes with the fact that the people I have had on the podcast to talk about it all, have talked about with them previously, kind of off record, they tend to talk about it in, they've, they've had it for 5, 10, 15 years. Uh, so I'm looking forward to hopefully in another couple of years time, starting to have some more conversations with people that maybe just got started in the, in the, last, in the last couple of years. We are going to come back to Grant in the second half to discuss some of the challenges or obstacles in getting these programs up and running, as well as some also some global fronting chat as well. But now it is time for our captive owner interview, and I'm really pleased to introduce Heineken's Rohier Bauman, Global Head of Pensions and Benefits, and Fanny Berlins, Global Pensions and Benefits Specialist, to our listeners. The beer giant formed a new captive in Ireland in 2021, and Rohier began by explaining how they decided to implement a captive into their EB program. Over the past few years, we've been working with global underwriting programs and that has worked quite well. And we have created uh, economies of scale. We have leveraged upon that, but we also felt that we wanted to do more and to strengthen our employee benefits offering even further. And the reason why we chose to go to captive is to be fully in control of the process. The key reasons that we wanted to do that is to improve our employee benefit offering by reducing terms and conditions and exclusions, get more control over the process and many more advantages that we see to go to captive. For example, by removing medical checks, uh, we can avoid uh, provider coverage limitations. Uh, We can align on eligibility requirements for our employees. We will have more control in case of disputes. And of course, we also see uh, that there will be financial benefits, though for us, that was not a primary concern. 
And so we do think that there are options to save a bit of money, to be more effective, and to be better uh, cost control mitigations, to have more stable premiums. But the key reason for this is from a qualitative perspective to further our people agenda and to strengthen our employee benefit offering. Fantastic. And a lot of those themes will certainly sound familiar to, to listeners when we've talked about employee benefits before. So that's great to hear that firsthand experience. Fanny, what advantages have, have you already begun to realize uh, so far after introducing the captive and, and what ongoing benefits do you think the captive's role will have? So, so now we have completed the first full year with the captive uh, in the f- first year. Of course, we, we focus on the, um, the operational setup, um, but we also uh, focused on three, uh, let's say, projects um, that are related to the employee benefits captive. So one is that we have, as well, he mentioned, that we have aligned the renewal process um, to our annual budget planning process so that, of course, could actually better indicate uh, the planned costs uh, that are related to the insured benefits programs. Um, we also have evolved the broker model. Um, so in some countries, we have completely removed broker arrangements or we have in other countries uh, replaced the broker arrangements by targeted consultancy arrangements. Um, and also third project which we, which we have used with the employee benefits captive is that we have uh, removed common exclusions around alcohol um, abuse, um, uh, HIV uh, suicide. That's uh, what we have focused on the first year and also already achieved in the first year with the captive. Yeah, it's really interesting, a really clear example of how uh, having that control over employee benefits program can give the the corporate kind of that more tailored control over kind of what is covered, what's not excluded or, or excluded. So I think that's that's really interesting. Rohier, Heineken does already have a self-managed P&C-focused captive domiciled in the Netherlands. Why did you decide to establish a separate captive then for employee benefits? Because it's often we see see them combined, not not always. But how did you come to the decision to have a, a separate standalone captive for EB? Yeah, that's a very logical question, Richard. And to be frank, it wasn't also our first thought. Uh, indeed, uh, in the beginning, we also thought to leverage upon our existing captive. The reason why we chose to create a separate captive uh, were a number of reasons. First of all, currently we have a direct writer, uh, which means that we can also have the possibility to use direct business in our PNC captive. If we wanted to combine uh, both the life insurance, the employee benefit insurance, as well as the PNC business, we needed to change the status to a reinsurance, meaning that we would lose the possibility to do direct business in our PNC captive. Another reason was that we wanted to do a fully outsourced model for our employee benefits offering. And we did not want to create extra roles internally to manage and deal with all the operational aspects of, uh, of the captive. Currently, our PNC captive is mainly managed in-house. And so for this captive, we wanted to do that out-house, uh, which was also a reason to do it separately. Uh, another one is that, of course, there are financial benefits to combine the captives, but overall, uh, the captive in itself needs to be a standalone business case. It needs to make sense, of course, from a qualitative nature, as we discussed before, but also from a financial perspective. So definitely over time, we will assess whether the current setup is the most effective and most logical one, or that in the future, we may want to combine the captive. But for now, for us, it was the most logical choice. 
yeah, obviously you did think about it in a lot of detail as, as you were making that decision. And I think it'll be interesting to see how, how the structure and strategy evolves over time, uh, whether you do stay with two separate ones or, or perhaps combine them. I think that'd be int- really interesting to see how that evolves. So you chose Ireland or, or Dublin and Ireland as, as kind of the captive domicile. I'm sure you considered multiple domicile options because there are obviously choices. Why did Ireland emerge as, uh, as the choice of destination? Yeah, absolutely. We considered a lot of a lot of domiciles, and indeed, there's plenty of choice in in that regard. And we view ourselves as a truly global company. Of course, we have roots in the Netherlands, but we have developed into a truly global company. So there's not a sort of default choice to to consider. But we did look into various aspects, and of course, we're a company which is very dependent on its brand. Uh, our company name is, is is our key brand, and so for us, we wanted to avoid any domiciles that could be considered. Uh, Dutchy from from a regulatory perspective eh, to avoid regulations or from a fiscal perspective. And also we wanted to establish a captive in a country where we have substantial business. Another aspect which was quite relevant for us is because we wanted to have an outsourced model. So it needed to be a domicile with a very mature infrastructure and a lot of capabilities locally eh, to have that outsourced model available. And of course, the link to our global networks which we need uh, to do uh, to do business. All those things considered combinedly led to the conclusion that Ireland was uh, was most suitable for us. Yeah, fascinating. Always hear, always good to hear the different factors that go into people's choices regarding domiciles because they're not always the same factors, and so it's good to hear what yours were. Fanny, just to end then, how, how do you plan to ensure that the success of the Employee Benefits Captive projects over the medium to longer term? How do, you, how do you go about measuring what that success is? Mm. I think that very much uh, depends on, on, on how much it has helped us then to realize our objectives. So they are in various areas. So around benefit design, for example, as we aim to um, reduce the workload on renewals, I think we would measure that by asking the OPCOs or receiving OPCO feedback. So OPCOs are our entities to receive the OPCO feedback that actually they have less workload around renewal. So it, this this would be just direct feedback from, from the OPCOs, but also as we uh, aim with the captive to increase the employee experience through customized, let's say, benefit design, we would also try to receive uh, employee's feedback on that. Other areas are around benefits financing. So, for example, uh, let's say, of course, we would like to see uh, more stability on premium levels. So that's how we would measure the success in, in terms of the benefits financing. And last but not least, and that's also something we would look into um, more as the captive matures, that by having greater insights in claims developments, that we also have the ability to mitigate risks, identifying claims, patterns, and respond, let's say, with adequate health and wellness initiatives. Um, so these are, I think, areas we are looking into. And we either would uh, try to receive direct feedback from UPCOS or employees, or we actually use the data and claims data to, to measure the success of the captive.
Paul, when captives are exploring a potential legacy transaction, whether fully offloading a captive or transferring a portfolio of business, is it important for them to know the partner they work with has a full suite of vehicles ready to support their chosen strategy? Yes, that's right, Richard. At R&Q, as a result of completing legacy transactions at the major captive domiciles over the last 13 years, we've built up a compelling portfolio of liability consolidation vehicles. We have companies in Bermuda, Cayman, Guernsey, Isle of Man, Vermont, and for EU business in Malta. This allows us to seamlessly assume legacy liabilities onto our platform without facing endless cross-border transactions. We also have two A-rated carriers, one in the US, admitted across all states, and the other in Malta, with all non-life licenses and freedom of services across the EU and a branch in the UK. This allows us to offer widespread solutions as replacement capacity, or as a retrospective front, or as a well-rated reinsurer to gain capital efficiency. Thank you, Paul. Well, if you want more information on R&Q, then visit their Friend of the Podcast page on the globalcaptivepodcast.com website, or follow the links in the episode show notes. So I really hope you did enjoy the Heineken story there and we are certainly looking forward to seeing how their dual captive strategy evolves over the next few years. But before we go back to Grant at Alliance in London to continue our structured reinsurance and fronting discussion, we have a four minute interview with Joe McDonald, the new director of captives for the South Carolina Department of Insurance. I caught up with Joe at Seeker in March, so let's hear how he is settling in. So, Joe, welcome back to uh, the Global Captive Podcast, and, and more importantly, uh, welcome back to a, a regulatory uh, position at South Carolina. Can you outline for listeners uh, what your new job is and uh, your responsibilities? Of course. Uh, thank you for having me, Richard. And welcome back to this side of the Atlantic to you. Yeah, cheers. Uh, it's always been, it's, it's really a pleasure to be on the premier podcast for all things captive related. <laughs> <laughs> By default, I think. <laughs> Uh, so yes, um, so my new role is the director of captives in South Carolina, and I will lead the captive division within the South Carolina Department of Insurance. Uh, my responsibilities will include, of course, being a liaison to the industry, helping to attract new captive companies uh, to the state, and marketing South Carolina as a premier onshore domicile. Uh, I'll be working with really a truly stellar team uh, to license new companies, assist in expanding existing companies uh, with strategic reviews are conducted, and business plan changes are requested and applying the regulatory framework in South Carolina really in such a way that we remain one of the very top choices for captive companies and service providers. So obviously um, you did previously uh, work at South Carolina a few years ago. Um, what do you think the initial priorities are gonna be for you to, to get the Department of Insurance and the, the captive you know, division specifically operating in the way that uh, you envisage or you want it to be? So there actually have been a, a number of change, changes that have recently taken place within the captive division in South Carolina. Um, there has been a reorganization of some of our talent, and we have several new hires that have joined the team, and I'm really confident that they're going to be quite complimentary. Um, so getting the right people in the right place is obviously a key objective for me. Uh, along with this, my primary goals are going to be to increase efficiencies in internal processes, uh, update our marketing strategy, revise and update our captive statute, 
uh, and keep South Carolina on the for forefront of people's minds when it comes to domicile selections for quality captive programs. Fantastic. So obviously, hard market has, has been around for some time now. I don't think, don't think it's leaving us anytime soon. And that's led to significant rise in captive formation activity. And you and I have discussed this before on, on the podcast. But in terms of formation activity in South Carolina, do you, do you have uh, kind of the exclusive new numbers to hand in terms of the licenses which were issued in, in 2021, which I should say was before you joined. So you can't take credit for them, Joe. <laughs> but what, uh, what, 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 what were the numbers from last year? Uh, no, certainly won't take credit. Uh, but uh, so, so last year, uh, South Carolina formed uh, licensed 21 new captives. Uh, that brings our, our total number of captives, active captive companies, uh, to 182. Uh, and over 40 of these are actually RRGs. So, yeah, we've had some, some steady growth and, uh, and solid companies, and that's what we want in South Carolina. So, obviously, it's such a competitive captive domicile landscape, particularly in the U.S. Here's your chance for a kind of a couple of yeah, a few seconds elevator pitch for South Carolina. What, what does South Carolina offer to prospective captive owners? Right. Uh, you know, we offer a mature domicile with a, a really balanced statute. Uh, we have a division of regulators that are, are solely focused on captives and are highly experienced in, in, in regulating captives. Um, as regulators, we, we understand the strategic purposes for which captives are created, and we, we want to regulate in a way that adds value to the captive and the parent company and not make the application of statute and regulations overly burdensome. Um, however, uh, the very best companies want an appropriate regulatory structure and regimen applied, and that's where we shine. You know, my team is available, responsive, knowledgeable, and professional, and we understand that there are competing domiciles, of course, uh, and a number of choices for owners. That said, I want us to set ourselves apart by being timely and thoughtful in our communication, flexible, helpful, and really, you know, co consultative in our interactions with owners and industry professionals. Welcome back to GCP 65, where I am joined again by Grant Maxwell of AGC and S. Grant, in the first half, we were talking a lot about the positives of a structured approach and the benefits of that. But I presume there can be challenges or hurdles to, to get these programs in place in the first place. So what are some of the reasons you hear that often stop them from being ultimately implemented? It's, it is challenging to put these in place. They, they are specialized programs. So I think the, the most important thing is for the, the client, the risk manager, to have a very clear view of you know, what, what are their motivations? What do they want to achieve? You know, it, it, is the motivation cost-saving, the primary motivation? Is it cost-saving? Is it lack of traditional capacity? What is their desired balance between stability over time and uh, and, and kind of you know, profit-sharing, if you like? Um, so, you know, the, the, the balance between risk retention and, and risk transfer. And what time horizon are they looking at? You know, are they looking over a three-year time horizon, five-year time horizon, longer? We find typically three or five years is, is, is a typical time horizon here. And then it's a case of working collaboratively to try and achieve those those goals, the, meet those needs, and and that takes time. So it typically makes sense to start looking at one of these before you would look at a traditional, yeah. you know, before you would start your traditional placement. I would say at least three months to to, to put one of these in place, and actually longer than that. It, it, if this is going to be a fundamental change for a client, then then longer the the longer the better. And I think the the main reasons why these don't happen is either it, it's not possible to 
design something that is attractive and, and meets the, the, the client's needs, which is, you know, that, that's absolutely fine. That these don't work for everybody. Um, and, and, you know, in certain circumstances, they may not be more attractive than, than what's available, in, you know, through the traditional market or self-retention. And that's why it's important to really go through those, those motivations and needs early and, and, and look at what the structure is, because nobody wants to spend a lot of time, you know, working on something and then find it, it, it doesn't work. And we're, we're very happy to work with people, with clients and, and brokers to, to go through that. Um, but it definitely makes sense for all sides to you know, reach that conclusion as, as early as possible. And the other main reason is simply running out of time. Um, yeah. So first of all, there's this, this time taken to design the program, but then also the, typically the risk manager has to convince other stakeholders, the CFO or, or other stakeholders, particularly if this is a big change to, to the program. And, and that just takes time. And so we often find we run out of time, but often we find if, if that happens, then everyone says, okay, we've run out of time this year, but we'll revisit next year and and lo and behold you know something is actually put in place next year so that was gonna be my follow-up question was if they do kind of run out of time is it does it make it easier to to go again next time you've got a lot of building blocks should already be in place yes definitely i can't I can't think what the you know how many times we've we've done that, but but definitely once someone has looked at this, you, you'll either find that you realise quite early on this is just not going to work. If we've come up with a structure that that works and the risk manager is convinced, but it's just run out of time, then then yes, there's a good chance that it will work the next year. It's interesting the other point you made about sometimes you know you know risk managers are busy, right? The, the, the renewals are already a taxing and, and long administrative heavy process. I was having drinks with a, a risk manager last night, large Fortune 500 type company and uh, they he's really keen to add employee benefits to their to their captive and start doing that but he just hasn't got the time he knows they're going to do it he knows that they want to do it he knows it makes sense but he's waiting for the kind of cavalry to arrive so he can actually start working with his uh, with his hr colleague on, on putting that into place and i imagine it's similar there's probably lots of risk managers out there who similarly probably see this solution as right for them but they just need a bit more time a bit more help to, to get it over the line in terms of putting the program together and, and the process of multi-line multi-year programs obviously it sounds like it could be quite complex internally at AGCS how do you need to go around because obviously if they're multi-line programs do you need to go around and get input and sign off from from all the different lines of, of businesses businesses involved does that kind of add, add to the process uh, so it, it can be quite complex um, and it does need the ability to work seamlessly across lines of business you know getting input getting underwriting expertise from those different lines of business and also from different functions as well um, mm. so to put one of these programs together we need to be able to model the, the the transaction and model different structures different scenarios we need to be able to think about operational needs you know policy issuance and 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 you know premium payments and things and and also claims needs who's going to handle the claims and then not least we need to be able to document the the final structure which is which is not a standard structure so you need to create bespoke documentation. So there are lots of things that need to come together. Our approach within AGCNS is, you know, we have a, a dedicated standalone ART team that has all that capability within it. Um, so we work very closely with the other lines of business and we pull in expertise from the other lines of business, but we have our own underwriting authority. We don't need sign off um, from those lines of business. Um, we, no, we follow the same broad standards, but it's important that we don't need individual sign off because you can't look at 
when you're looking at a structured program, program, you have to look across the whole program. You can't look at each piece on its own and yeah. um, and 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 get sign off individually on on each piece. So yeah, we we feel it's very very important for us to be able to have that that underwriting authority. And also we have we have modelers, we have claims expertise, operational expertise, legal expertise within our team. So we can bring a cross-functional deal team together that, that brings all of that. And we think that's the best model. We think that's really important. And I think we've, you know, we've demonstrated that it does work. And I think that differentiates us from quite a few um, you know, other players in, in this market. Well, one of the areas we haven't uh, touched upon much is, um, is the fronting side of things. And we know obviously Allianz are a big uh, captive fronter as well globally. When you're working with a company on the structured reinsurance side of things, do you do you want or have to be doing the fronting as well, or can that be completely separate? So you're right. We we do offer fronting with, within ART, and and we do it. The reason we do it within ART, with, within the alternative risk transfer team within AGCNS, is because we also look at that as a, on a very kind of tailor-made basis. So you know we we look at designing a, a fronting program that meets the client's particular needs, and we're happy. We like offering both, providing both to the same clients. We find many clients want that, and and there's definitely um, you know synergies in terms of. Uh, we don't. You don't have two different teams asking the same questions and 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 understanding the the, the setup. So it, it's definitely beneficial for us and for the clients. But it, it's it, it, it's not necessary from our point of view. The reason being that there are different drivers for buying and and running a, a fronting program versus a, a structured reinsurance program. Simplistically, the the fronting program is all about having the multinational yeah. you know network, the capabilities, the expertise, service levels. And the, the risk transfer piece and the, the structured reinsurance piece is all about risk appetite and, and capacity. And those things are, are separate. Um, and, and so we can offer both. And we like the fact we can offer both, but we offer them as, as standalone products. So how big is the appetite then on, on captive fronting generally? Do you need to be taking a slice of the risk, which we often hear from, from various fronters to get on the program, or or can you do 100% fronting? Because that's definitely something I'm hearing from captive owners. They're looking more and more for just to have 100% fronter, so the, the fronter's not taking any, any of the risk. Yes, and absolutely. We we offer 100% standalone fronting. And yeah, as you said, we, we feel that's very beneficial, very important, because then we're not tied into, we're not limited by our risk transfer yeah appetite so you know we can make the best use of our very broad um you know cross line of business capabilities multinational network capabilities and then we're not limited to you know to our our own internal risk appetite so we 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 definitely offer that as a standalone product and it we are growing that part of our business as well so just lastly then we've been talking about the multi-line multi-year insurance the the structured uh, and briefly touched upon the fronting what about kind of multi-line fronting how how does that work and is it common that you're doing multi-line fronting for for clients so we do offer multi-line fronting and again we think that's one of our competitive advantages that we have those broad capabilities and because it's not tied to our own risk appetite then yeah we we can we can give the client what they want regardless of what our own you know internal risk appetite is and so typically the way that works we have a master program that will cover multiple lines of business will will cover um, maybe mul- you know maybe this will be a multi-year relationship and 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 within that master program we'll define aggregate limit service levels collateral requirements and then there are underlying policies um, in each country in each in each line of business sometimes 
depending on the location, sometimes it can be a multi-line policy in one location. Sometimes it's separate individual policies, yeah. but but they're they're all gathered together, uh, you know, under the master program. Important point is this can be expanded over time. So we have written single-line programs that we then add lines to over time. So these can be flexible to, you know, to add to add lines, uh, you know, a, a, as the, the program goes. And yeah, we see a lot of interest uh, in, in that. The, the whole alternative risk transfer space is growing, captives are growing, and so th- there's more interest in, in multi-line fronting. Yeah, absolutely. On your last point, yeah, captives certainly are growing at the moment and, and they're adding new lines, so that flexibility is certainly welcome. But Grant, that's all we've got time for today and I really, really do appreciate you coming on to the Global Captive Podcast. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, it's been a pleasure and, and thank you for having me. And thank you to Rohier and Fanny at Heineken and Joe McDonald in South Carolina. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well and see you next time, captives.